from beside Bath, probably one of the Cotswold villages, not Bath itself. But she has gone down in history as the wife of Bath, and it seems pointless to correct her address now. Her appearance. She was suddenly eye-catching. Bold was her face, and fair, and red of hue. She had an elaborate wimple round her face and head, and a wide-brimmed hat on the top of it, as big as an archery target. Her hose were of fine scarlet red. Scarlet was the finest kind of wool cloth you could buy. The word did not at that time mean a colour. But hers were dyed red, another indication of her status since red was an expensive dye. Hose in those days were made of cloth, preferably cut on the cross or bias, which would give them a little elasticity, but they had to be full straight, tightly tied, by garters below the knee for women. They were made of one piece, from the knee down to the instep, with a seam up the back, and pieces let into the sides of the foot and the sole. It seems obvious to us that knitted hose would have been so much more comfortable, but knitting had not yet taken its place among fashionable garments. Hose are always shown in contemporary pictures as smoothly encasing the leg, which I assumed was an artistic license until I caught sight of a modern young woman whose jeans were tighter than skin tight and certainly encased her legs smoothly, leaving little room for wrinkles. The wife's moist new shoes were of soft, tanned leather. She clearly had no intention of walking anywhere. We're not told much about what else she wore, but it was no doubt in the forefront of fashion for long-distance riders. She did wear a foot-mantle about her hips large, and on her feet a pair of spurs sharp. The foot-mantle was a kind of deep bag, usually covering a rider's clothes up to knee level or beyond, to save them from the dust and mud of the journey. But she must have had her feet out of it to show off her elegant red hose and her new shoes. The Wool Trade English wool, especially from the Cotswolds and Norfolk, had been prized in European trade circles for many years. The Italian textile merchants regularly sent agents over to England to bargain for the best wool. They sometimes found English place names difficult. For example, Cotswold turned into Condiscaldo. The significance of the wife of Bath lay in the simple fact that she was a weaver, and such a skilful weaver that she outdid the weavers in the long-established continental cloth centres of Ypres and Ghent. Chaucer's audience well knew the importance of those cities. Flanders ran a smouldering trade war with English weavers. For many generations, England's prosperity had rested on the export of raw wool. Hence the Chancellor of the Exchequer sat until recently on a wool sack, England being still devoted to its history of even half a millennium ago. Suddenly, in historical terms, everything changed. Wool was processed in England and exported to the great fairs in the Low Countries as woven cloth. There had been weavers in England for many years. London weavers were the first of any trade to get a royal charter in 1155, giving them a monopoly of weaving in London, Southwark, and the district within five miles. But the weavers were never able to compete with the twelve great companies, such as the drapers. They were mostly small master craftsmen working at home, on piecework rates, converting yarns supplied by the purchaser of their product. For the whole trade to change from producing wool to weaving cloth, meant a vast national reorganisation. A numerous and skilful workforce 
had to be recruited and trained from scratch to carry out the many processes between the sheep's back and the merchant's counter. The wool had to be washed and dyed, unless this was done after the cloth had been woven. The wool from different sheep had to be blended and combed or carded to get the fibres to lie parallel to each other. Spinning it on a distaff was thought to produce a stronger thread, but a spinning wheel worked much faster. The warp, the long threads that bore the weight of the fabric, had to be wound onto reels and then onto the loom. Only then could weaving begin. One person could work a narrow loom, throwing the shuttle across with his right hand and catching it at the other side with his left, but a broad loom needed two weavers. Six spinners were required to supply one loom. A medieval loom was an intricate, complicated piece of machinery that hardly changed until the factories of the Industrial Revolution.